Good morning once again to you. If you have your Bibles, I invite you to meet me in Acts chapter 17. We'll be in verses 32 through 34. Once again, that's Acts 17, 32 through 34. Um, missed you guys last week. Uh, my wife and I celebrated our 12th anniversary together on Sunday. And um, we certainly don't need a clap for that. But <laughs> I do appreciate the love. Uh, yeah, we've, we've, uh, we're just babies. Um, but we look forward to uh, the rest of our lives together. Um, Acts 17, verses 32 through 34. The last time we were in the book of Acts, uh, the last time I was here was two weeks ago, where we um, looked at this sermon from Paul that he preached to the people living in Athens, specifically the sermon that he gave at the Areopagus, which was a formal place of debate and discussion. And um, what we read was a clear presentation of the gospel, right? That, that is the good news of Jesus Christ. And this week, we'll read just three short verses that describe the Athenians' response uh, to such message. Uh, before we begin, though, I do want to provide a full disclaimer of sorts to you uh, to today. Back when I was a youth pastor here um, at FAC, every year the youth ministry would take a trip to uh, either Chicago or Washington, D.C. It was called Lead the Cause. Um, you've heard me talk about it often because of how influential it's been in that particular ministry and even in my own life. Um, at Lead the Cause, our students were trained how to share the gospel, how to tell their unbelieving friends and family about Jesus. And uh, during this trip, they would experience something called core training in the mornings. And uh, these training sessions happened in a classroom setting uh, with a, an instructor. And for many years, I actually had the privilege of serving as one of those instructors. They would put me with another youth group, uh, and I filled that role. And having filled that role, Dare to Share, which is the ministry that uh, ran this entire event, um, gave full permission to their instructors to use this material uh, in other areas. And so with that being said, a good portion, not all of it, but a good chunk of today's sermon actually comes from that curriculum, from uh, that uh, core training that I used at Lead the Cause. And it fits well here, and I think that you'll find it helpful. It's it's a little bit different than what we normally do uh, in that it's more topical in nature, um, but we will find that it's practical and, and effective. And so uh, let's go ahead and read from God's word and then we'll dive into this together and we will ask him for help as we seek out his will for our life. Uh, once again, we are in Acts 17 verses 32 through 34. Now, when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked, but others said, we will hear you again about this. And so Paul went out from their midst, but some men joined him and believed among whom also were Dionysius, the Areopagite and a woman named Damaris and others with them. Would you pray with me? Father, we thank you for this morning. And we come to you this morning admitting our own weaknesses and recognizing that we are much too small and inadequate to handle the realities of our fallen world. And so we come to you for our strength and our fulfillment and our comfort. 
Would your spirit fill our tank this morning so that we may be satisfied by your grace and fully satisfied by your mercy and fully satisfied by your presence and your presence alone. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So a few years ago, I was um, traveling, uh, returning from a trip and flying into Cleveland's International Airport. Um, I don't know why, but as I grow older, I find myself a lot more anxious about flying than I did in my younger years. And that came into play on this particular flight coming into Cleveland. As we came in for the landing, uh, we experienced some fairly significant turbulence on our descent, and it seemed as though the pilot was struggling to align the plane with the runway. The entire plane was doing a lot of this and a lot of this and a lot of this. I had no idea what was going on. I, I just wanted him to land the stinking thing because landing... On the flight is this is the most nerve-wracking thing. It's my least favorite part of the flight. Because think about it, you've got 90,000 pounds of steel plummeting towards Earth at over 150 miles an hour for the landing. And so we're coming in for the landing through this turbulence, and, and I can hear mechanisms going off, which I presume to be uh, the landing gear, the wheels. And I'm telling you that we couldn't be more than 10 feet off the ground when all of a sudden the plane jerks up and takes off again, right? And so we're circling around the airport. A good 10 or 15 minutes go by, and then the pilot comes over the intercom, and he says, sorry about that, folks. We had some strong turbulence coming in for the landing, and there was some traffic on the runway. And that's all he said. And I'm sitting there already nervous, thinking that this was the, the worst landing experience I had ever had, and now we have to do it again. <laughs> Thankfully, the pilot was able to set the plane down successfully after a second attempt, and I was never more pleased to have my feet on the ground. In the last few years, uh, we have challenged each other here at FAC to be, to be missional, and have challenged us as a body of believers to go out and to share the good news of Jesus, right? To be missional, not just in how we love people, but in actually telling them the greatest news of all, the news of Jesus, the gospel. And I've had many conversations with individuals from our church have been encouraged by those of you who have taken up that challenge. And on several occasions, I've been asked by congregants how do I finish the con conversation? How do, how do I do this? They say it differently, but essentially what they're asking is, how do I land the plane? How do I land the plane? One of the hardest parts of sharing the gospel is actually bringing it up. It's, it's the taking off, if you will, with the nose pointed down the runway. There's a lot of nerves. You, you'll actually find once you're in the conversation, it's much easier than, than maybe you had originally thought. Uh, and many of you have taken the bold step and find that flying is actually not so hard. But if the hardest part of sharing the gospel is taking off, is bringing it up, then the second, maybe equally hardest part of sharing the gospel is landing the plane. Bringing the person to a point of decision of what they will do with Jesus. It's a nerve-wracking experience, right? 
Many of us can get into the conversation after much practice and then just hover for all of eternity in the sky without ever attempting even to land the plane. And maybe even there's moments where we think we're coming in for the landing during your conversations, and then all of a sudden you hit some turbulence, and it makes you anxious, and it makes you nervous, and you don't know how to answer some of their questions, and so you just take the plane right back up uh, off again. And then you just fly around and around and around. Don't get me wrong. Sometimes these conversations last for a very long time. And sometimes these conversations have to be more than one conversation. They need to continue another time. But let me urge you and encourage you at some point, land the plane. Attempt to land the plane. This can be a challenge for believers because most Christians are super relational when it comes to evangelism. And when you try to land the plane on a gospel conversation, it leans much more towards relentless. But we must lovingly pursue uh, someone and lovingly put someone on the spot and ask them if they're ready to put their faith in Jesus because there is an urgency to this. James 4 describes that our life is but a mist. It appears for a little bit of time, and then it vanishes. Here today, gone tomorrow. And our life and those around us go as quickly as they came. In the grand scheme of life, we have very limited opportunities. Not too long ago, we had a congregant who started uh, attending FAC. And um, he was plugged in for a few months and I had made a connection with him. We spoke almost every single week. I wasn't sure where he was spiritually. Uh, It was mainly small talk. And I remember on one particular Sunday having small talk with him, chatting with him. But he was here at that moment. By the end of the week, he had passed away unexpectedly. Many times in churches, as we think about church and how we do our Sunday services, we ask the question, what if this is someone's first time here? Right? And and then we make all sorts of accommodations and prepare for someone uh, to step through the door for the first time. We want to give off a first impression, a good first impression. We want to be friendly. We want to have everything we can to prepare for somebody who's here for the first time to make sure and ensure that they're cared for. We prepare for the new person walking in the door for the first time. However, the question that each church should be asking is not just what if this is someone's first time here, but what if this is someone's last time here? What if in this moment, for whatever reason, this is the last time that you will be walking through these doors? This is why the gospel needs to be shared every single Sunday in some way, because there is an urgency to this. This is why I want every single person in this room to know as you sit here in this moment that we were created to be in a perfect relationship with God. But we are separated from God and our sin. And our sin can't be removed by our good deeds. It cannot be removed by us being good enough. And so Jesus came and he was good enough for us. And he mended our relationship 
to God. And he paid the price for our sin by willingly going to the cross, a death in punishment that was rightfully ours. He stood in our place at the cross and then overcame death by rising from the dead. And now everyone who puts their trust in Jesus alone has eternal life. If this is the last time that you are here at FAC, for whatever reason, at least you walk out those doors having heard the most important good news that you will ever hear in your entire life. And so as we go out and as you as a believer maybe are sitting here and you're thinking, I want to do this. I want to tell my unbelieving friends and family about Jesus. But Mike, how do we get from point A, which is sharing the gospel, the good news that I just briefly described to point B, landing the plane on the conversation? Well, as all things, we need to follow the pattern that we, is set before in Scripture. We need to embrace, if you will, the method of invitation. This, this is scattered throughout all Scripture. We must not underestimate the power of a simple invitation. In Matthew eleven twenty-eight through 30, Jesus gives an invitation. And what does he say? He says, come to me. Come to me. It's an invitation. Come to me. All who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. That is an invitation. The Bible actually ends in an invitation. Did you know that? Revelation twenty-two seventeen. It's one of the final verses in the entire Bible. It says, the spirit and the bride say, come and let the one who hears say, come. And let the one who is thirsty come. Let the one who desires take the water of life without price. In that very verse, both the third person of the Trinity, the Holy Spirit, and the members of the church, the bride, if you will, are part of this holy and urgent invitation. Come to Jesus. Come to Jesus and drink this living water that will satisfy you. Nothing else will satisfy you, but come and drink this living water. Even in the passage that we studied a few weeks ago, the, Paul's message at the Areopagus to the Athenians, he invites all people to repent. He, he's saying, hey, turn away from these worthless idols that aren't going to satisfy you and turn to the living God. You see, in this age and in Paul's age, there was an open invitation to all people from God to come to him and to experience life as he originally created it to be experienced. And so we as believers are merely the channel by which that invitation is extended. But there, there is an open invitation to all humanity by God. And we are merely, if you will, the postal workers. We are the ones that are taking that invitation and delivering the invitation to others. Now, this does not say that we are to coerce people to, to convert. This is not to say that uh, we, uh, they won't need time to wrestle through the claims of Christ. But we must do our best to give them the opportunity then and there to put their trust in Jesus. 
And so how do we land the plane? You've explained the gospel clearly. And what do you do? There's an invitation. There's actually two very practical questions that you can ask at any given moment after you've shared the the, the message of Jesus with them. These come straight from dare to share. First, you ask them, does this make sense? Does this make sense to you? This question will help you gauge their understanding of the message. In many ways, the gospel is a very simple message, but in other ways, it is, it is a vastly different message than any other message out there. You want to make sure that there's clarity, and if there isn't, if they say, no, I don't understand, then you loop the plane back around again. And you try and explain the the gospel again. Maybe you use uh, different words this time. Maybe you explain it from another angle, use a different illustration, if you will, but you loop the plane around until they do understand. But if they say yes, then that frees you up to ask them a second question. Is there anything holding you back from trusting in Jesus right now? Is there anything holding you back from trusting in Jesus right now? This is a great question because it's relational. It's not forcing them into anything, but it's also relentless. It gets them to think on the spot. It puts them to a point of decision. It helps them identify what's going on in their own heart. Sometimes they don't even know what it is until you ask them that question. And if they say, yes, uh, there's something holding me back, it it gives you the opportunity to continue the conversation and find the specific roadblocks that they're hung up on. But if they say, no, no, there isn't anything holding me back, then perhaps in that moment, the Holy Spirit has flicked the lights on and have brought them from death to life. Once you have done this. Once you have clearly communicated the gospel and given them an opportunity to respond, to answer this question, you have done your job. That is everything that you you have been called to do. You've done everything that you were called to do in that moment. And they are going to respond in one of three ways. But before we get to the potential responses, you have to know that their response is not your responsibility. Their response is not your responsibility. Our responsibility is just simply to to deliver the invitation. Their responsibility is to RSVP. You can't do that for them. That's on them. And the only way that they will respond with a yes to Jesus is by the supernatural touch of the Holy Spirit. You are powerless to do what only the Holy Spirit can do. And that is to bring someone from death to life. However, in regards to our responsibility in the matter, it can be tempting to hide behind that theological truth that it's the Holy Spirit's job and responsibility to convert someone. So I just, I don't have to do anything, right? If this is purely the full work of the spirit, then I'm off the hook. But what we fail to realize is that the Holy Spirit works in conjunction with the clear and compelling words of his servants to get people to say yes 
to Jesus. As an artist intentionally chooses the utensils he uses to build his masterpiece, the Holy Spirit intentionally chooses to use us as the utensils to build God's kingdom. Does he need you to build his kingdom? No, but he chooses to use you. He desires to use you nonetheless. So we are called to be obedient and let the spirit do his work. Paul puts it this way in 2 Corinthians 5. He writes, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them. That's the gospel right there, right? That through Christ, God is reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them. Listen to this part. And entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. He he has entrusted this message of reconciliation to us. Therefore, we are what Paul writes, ambassadors for Christ. God making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. That is our responsibility. But Paul is writing that, that we are we are to be ambassadors. We are to represent Christ here in the flesh on this earth. We are to be his messengers. And so some of us kind of get caught up as we're having these gospel conversations. We got caught up and in, in, in think that, uh, that we crash land or we land unsuccessfully if they reject the message. But that is simply not true because it wasn't your job to convert them. And it's only your job to extend the invitation. That's our hope. Right, that they would come and put their hope, their trust in Jesus, but it's out of our hands at that point. Instead, think about it like this: every time that you share the gospel, every time that you tell somebody about Jesus and and extend the invitation for them to turn to Him, once you've put the ball in their court, you have landed the plane successfully, and God is pleased with your efforts. Mission accomplished. Now, despite the fact that we land the plane at that moment, we must be ready uh, for their response. Because they're going to respond in probably one of three different ways, main ways. And we actually see all three here in Acts 17, right? The passage that we read at the beginning of our time together. I would be encouraged as you read through Acts and you hear Paul that it seemed like far more people rejected this message than accepted it. But we do see uh, kind of a a microcosm here in these three verses uh, of how people responded to the gospel message in in Paul's missionary uh, endeavors, right? First, some will reject the gospel and mock you. And so be strong. Some will reject the gospel and mock you, so be strong. Paul explains the gospel and the message. And then in verse 32, right at the beginning, now when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked. Or in other words, they sneered at him for such claim. Listen, you got to be kidding me. Really? Resurrection of the dead, Paul? Are you joking? This is a joke, right? You can't possibly believe that. I want you to notice that in our passage, um, that the Greeks get hung up on the resurrection. Right, it's almost as if, um, as if 
Paul was preaching and he gets interrupted in this moment. Right? He doesn't get interrupted about anything else. Uh, but, but as soon as he talks about the resurrection, he gets interrupted. And we have to understand that, that death and resurrection is what makes us as believers unique. Right? Once again, there are a lot of things in Christianity that the unbeliever can look at and say, yeah, I agree with that. Yeah, we should be loving towards people. We should be kind. We should be accepting. We, we, should, we should do all of these things and be generous. They can agree with that. But it's the death and resurrection of Jesus that sets us apart from any other worldview. The, the, the death and resurrection of Jesus is the foundational piece of our faith. Because without it, what hope or power do we possibly have? to overcome death ourselves and be reconciled to God. We don't. We don't have any hope or power apart from that. And so as a practical step in our messaging, we must get to the death and resurrection of Jesus. If if, if you never get to a point where you tell somebody about Jesus, you have not shared the gospel. We have to get that. But, but we also have to understand that there will be people that mock that. They will reject it. They, they will get hung up on that. There's a reason in this context why some of them would respond in such a strong way towards the resurrection. As soon as they heard that is when they, they stepped in and rejected Paul. The Greeks and the Romans, they had many different views of what happened to someone after they died, but a physical resurrection uh, of the body wasn't one of them. To them, this was a foreign concept and not even an option on the table. Pliny, the elder, he was a first century philosopher. He shared his own thoughts on the concept, right? He, he probably, having been around in the first century, heard about this Jesus that was resurrected. And uh, in regards to this idea of the resurrection of the body, this is what he wrote. He says, these are fictions of childish absurdity and belong to a mortality greedy for life unceasing a plague on this mad idea that life is renewed by death. It is a sweet but naive view. That gives us a pretty good idea of what the unbeliever is thinking here in the first century context. This was a very common uh, first century critique of Christianity. And yet here we are in the 21st century in, a, in a, what we would call or identify as a scientific age. And people still struggle with the concept of the resurrection. Chalking it up to childish absurdity. Fairy tales, they tell us. And we could show all the proofs. We could put all the proofs on display. Uh, we could display all of the objective evidence that, that, that points to the fact that this did indeed happen and people will still be blind to it and they will mock it. We could have the most airtight defense possible and they will still ridicule us over it. When this happens, we must be strong. We must remember that marginalization and the persecution, that persecution is a part of being a Christian witness. We must remember the words of our Savior 
when he tells us, hey, they're going to reject you because they rejected me first. That's the first response that you're going to get. Some will reject the gospel and mock you. So be strong. Second, some will be intrigued and want to find out more. And so be sharp. That's the second half of verse 32. Take a look. While others mocked, but others said, we will hear you again about this. No, 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 no. This is interesting. I want to hear more about this. We we, we got to talk some more. Some people uh, just need time to process and to think and to wrestle with such questions. We actually see this in scripture with the story of Nicodemus. Nicodemus was a Pharisee and he was a member of the Jewish ruling council. And in John chapter three, he comes to Jesus at night and Jesus explains to him that he has to be born again. Jesus is using an object illustration and Nicodemus is confused and he's saying, now, wait a minute, how can one be born again? I don't, I don't quite understand this. I need to wrestle with this idea a little bit more. That conversation took place near the beginning of Jesus's earthly ministry. But three years later, when Jesus was crucified, there was a rich man who was also a part of the Jewish ruling council named Joseph of Arimathea. And he was, according to the text, a secret Christ follower. He was a Christ follower, but he was a little nervous about what the other Pharisees were going to say. But he insisted on giving Jesus a proper burial. He put himself out there in what was a very risky move in burying his Savior. And who was there to help Joseph lay Jesus in the tomb? Nicodemus. Nicodemus helped Joseph, a Christ follower, bury Christ. And so I have to wonder if Nicodemus wrestled with the claims of Christ, but over time became a believer and then put his own name and role on the line by burying his Savior. If you have someone who is intrigued, and they want to find out more, it is critical that you are intentional with follow-up, right? We are called to be fishers of men. And so do what you can to keep them on the line, but don't let them swim away because there are many influences that will distract them. Keep the relationship going, keep the conversations going and try to help them find solid answers for their questions. And it's okay if you do not know all the answers. That's actually a a get out of jail free card, if you will. That's a way to engage them further by saying, I don't know the answer to this question, but can we find out the answer together? Can we explore this together and keep talking about this? Keep them intrigued. Keep them engaged. Some will want to find out more. And so be sharp. That's the second potential response. And then finally, some will be ready. Some will be ready to trust in Jesus right away. And so be strategic. That's the end of verse 34. But some men joined him and believed. Some men joined him and believed. Be ready 
and be strategic to follow through with those who are ready to follow Jesus. We need to have a plan in such place on an occasion. And frankly, we need to act like we know what we're doing. We need to know what those next steps are for a young infant Christ follower. We need to anticipate the yes. When I was 16 years old, I met Sarah, my wife, in our high school youth group. Um, she was the first and only girl that I ever asked out on a date. And when I asked her out on a date, she said, yes. And then I probably sounded like a bumbling idiot because I really didn't think through what I was going to say or do after she said, yes. I spent so much time considering how I would ask her out that I completely neglected uh, thinking through what to do or say after that. Frankly, I wasn't even sure the conversation was going to make it that far. When we tell people about Jesus, anticipate the yes, and then be strategic. Get them plugged in intentionally invite them into your spiritual life. Take them by the hand and walk with them spiritually. Disciple them because a coal out of fire doesn't last long. Granted, I would love for them to get plugged into church and to come here on Sunday mornings. But as you have led them and introduced them to Christ, and as they have said, yes, please know that you now have the responsibility to be the primary discipler in this person's life, at least initially. You're in it for the long run. And just like physical babies, spiritual babies need cared for. Spiritual infants need nutrition. They need fed. They need attention. They need loving care. And someday, as the Spirit works within their life and conforms them to the image of Christ, they will be the ones discipling the spiritual infants. That is our hope. That through uh, our, our labor and through our toil, that God would make disciples who make disciples. And so I have one final thing that I want to ask you this morning, two final things, really. If you are sitting here this morning, most of our time together has been, if you will, for the believer, for the one who's saying, yes, I am a follower of Jesus and this is good. But if you're sitting here today and you've heard the gospel message, you've heard us tell you about Jesus and how he is here to save you. I have a question for you. Does that make sense? Does that make sense? And if it doesn't, please, we want to hear from you. We want to help you make sense of this broken world that you live in. Does it make sense? If it does make sense, I have a follow-up question for you. Is there anything holding you back? Is there anything holding you back from trusting in Jesus right now? Once again, we are here for you. And we are available. And we want to help you come to this understanding of who Jesus is. Would you not leave today without at least talking to us? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, uh, we know that your word is good and that it is pure and that it is true, Lord. And we are thankful um, for the gospel message, the greatest news of all time. 
And I pray, Father, that there would be someone here who maybe the lights have clicked on for the first time and that they would make themselves known, Lord. Or if there's someone just struggling here today to grasp with these things, Father, uh, would by the power of your Spirit, um, would, would you just instill in them a heart and a desire to know you and to seek you? Would you call them and draw them to yourself? We praise you, Father, for all the good things you have given us, even when we don't deserve it. And in your holy name I pray. Amen. Let's go ahead and stand and sing as we close our time in one final song.